This podcast may contain f***ing swears that from this point on will not be f***ing bleeped. Self-important middle-class deluded straight white men bleating on and on and on and on and on and on and on about inconsequential arty shite again. This episode was recorded before lockdown in February 2020. Hello and welcome to Something Out of Nothing, a podcast exploring the nature of creativity. Attempting to discover what, if anything, creatives in different fields have in common. To do this, two friends with inquiring minds and a propensity to wang on at each other about creative stuff decided the best way would be to talk to other creatives and see if we can tease their secrets from them. He's Simon White, a writer and advertising type. And he is Neil Smith, an illustrator and graphic designer. I don't know what I'm talking about, that's the trouble. No, that's fine. This is great. So, um... Is it though? <laughs> no, I think I think it's good. So you'd never... So Simon, you would never have a suit made for you? Uh, I would need to exhaust the enormously long list of things I need to spend money on yeah. before I got there. Yeah, but you... But you're saying you you've got a weakness. You you would consider uh, a handmade shoe. Oh, that'd be above the suit on the list, but it's still quite low yeah. because I know how expensive they are. Because I I suppose it's not that low because I did actually look. Yeah. What would you go for? Well, they're the kind of brogy thing. I can't remember what they're called. It's would, not you, the... would you go for an ersatz shoe? Ersatz shoe. Yeah. What? How would one define an ersatz shoe? <laughs> I remember Danny Baker talking about his penchant for an ersatz shoe. <laughs> I think it's, just, it's a bit jazzy. I think that's because he just liked the sound of that sentence. Yeah, it's a fabulous word, isn't it? <laughs> uh, no, I think he was talking about he was talking about like jazzy shoes, you right. know, like jazz shoes. Yeah, sure. So probably a bit uh, spatsy, a little bit brogy. Okay, yes. But probably maybe different colours and textures. Right. Okay, kind of. Would you I've, go there? I've got some. Uh, I got some which I now only really wear for funerals. Oh, Simon, that's sad. super. They're very black and quite pointed, not quite winkle pickery, but yeah. that, but really pointy. And my kids think they're hilarious. Do they? Yeah, they think they're from the like the fifties or something. Amazing. I've got a massive soft spot for desert boots. Desert boots. I love all the cultural history What's of the desert, desert boot? boot. I don't know what that is. Don't you? No. Uh, is it more like a combat boot? No, the opposite. Oh. Uh, the mods used to that wear them. One might wear in the desert. It is. Well, it was kind of designed as a as a desert. So it's suede, right? Uh, and it's uh, super lightweight. Uh, and Clark's make them with a kind of creep sole. Ooh. Yeah, they're lovely, lovely things. I Don't adore know about them. them. Oh, wow. Yeah, they've got good cultural baggage. I'm they're... more of a sort of cowboy boot kind of man. I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. Yeah, I've seen you in your cowboy you boots, strutting round, strutting round Salisbury like a. You haven't seen me in my like cowboy, cowboy recently. Like an urban cowboy. Can't get him anymore. Yeah. Sad times. Get some new ones. Anyway, we're talking about... <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about that tailoring. That was because a proper tangent. It's okay, though, <laughs> because we're talking about tailoring. Um, and we're talking about craftsmanship, because today on the podcast, we're talking to um, a top chef, uh, Rob Goss, who works... Um, he works on a private yacht as head chef there but he has worked in Michelin star restaurants um, and um, he's a super interesting guy and he's super super into technique and um, craft um, and we were chatting about it and thinking this kind of parallels between his work and a lot of those kind of old-fashioned craftsmanship kind of jobs like you know being a tailor or something like that yeah there definitely is it's it is interesting in that the there is a point at which the you know the craft turns into uh, creativity where you get a good enough at a thing where you it just comes out that you make beautiful things without um, almost without meaning to you don't get to be creative you don't get to make great food unless you can really do all those things that yeah. techniquey stuff so there's and there's some kind of magic that happens when you get good enough at it that you're able to do stuff that other people who can't do those things yeah just can't do. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think it's that food of this kind of calibre and of these kind of really complex, rich combinations, 
that doesn't happen by accident and it only really happens when you get that good at it yeah uh, because your craft is at such a high level and it seems that um rob's um the industry the world that rob moves in the bar is so ridiculously high in terms of um the quality of your technique and craft and your general ability for all these uh, different things that uh, that happen in top class michelin star kitchens that um uh, yeah, you you have to be that good at it before they'll even you know even let you through the door really. Yeah, but I think that's I think that's perfectly put. Uh, and also, one of the things we talk about in the podcast, among lots of other things, um, is kind of the theatre of the restaurant. It, mm. feel, it feels like there's a bit of performance in um, going to a Michelin star restaurant. Not you know obviously people are there kind of for a show. Um, a little and, bit. And, they're certainly and, there for an experience, aren't they? Yeah, they're for an experience. Yeah. Um, and 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 being a chef in that environment, you know, you're you're very much part of the performance, mm. integral part of the performance. That's kind of interesting in itself. Rob talks about his um, little apprenticeships at various restaurants, which are which are referred to as a stage in French. Well, yeah, yeah, but you like st- that, don't you? But a stage. A stage. I like it, treading oh. the boards like a thespian. <laughs> <laughs> what else do we talk about? We talk about... Gizzards. Yeah, the, the gizzards do come into it. Or oh, they're only very briefly, you'll yeah. be pleased to know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gizzards and grannies. Oh, inspirational grannies. Yeah, he's got a very inspirational granny, which is yeah. uh, it's a lovely little story. Uh, we talk about Michelin stars and Michelin critics and the stress thereof. We also talk about Marco Pierre White. Rob worked under Marco Pierre White at Mirabelle. Um, See, that's, I mean, that's quite, I don't know anything about cooking or restaurants, but yeah. I know those two names. Yeah, there you go. There yeah. you go. And we talk about, what do we talk about? Talk a bit about his book, White Heat, which was mm. pretty seminal. Which I have subsequently bought and read and really liked. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. You've got a, what's your favourite recipe from it? Oh, didn't read any recipes. Pig's brains. <laughs> so say pig brain, pig's brains. Didn't read any recipes. I just read all his sort of philosophy stuff. His, um, he's, um, he's a proper kind of like punky kind of rock star He is guy. a punky rock star guy. And a little bit of it comes across as, oh, get over yourself, mate. Uh, just occasionally he slips into that. But a lot of the time he's, it, it just, what comes through is his uh, real calling it's a it's more than a passion for it it's um yeah. you can't stop it you can't help yeah yourself. compulsion yeah urgent that's the word yeah very good well there you go i'll go be a white and mirabel yeah apart from that simon it's all jamie oliver and tesco for you isn't it you're pretty much ch- uh, chucking a bit of nando's and you're pretty much there <laughs> you're such a heathen I really am <laughs> strutting around nando's in your cowboy boots we do talk about i don't even know if this um stays in the podcast i can't remember but we do talk about my uh, I, I sort of said I am a complete heathen when it comes to food, and yeah. I sort of confessed that if I was given the option, probably six days out of seven, I would take a pill rather than have to eat. And this blows my mind because I am the absolute opposite. Mm. E- eating, I thought, you know, it's the th- meal times are the things I look forward to. It's just a bit of a chore, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, saying. mate, I love it. I love to cook. Yeah, and I love to eat even more. So anyway, uh, yeah, it's. Maybe that's useful that I'm such a philistine that I can look at it completely dispassionately. <laughs> or maybe Neil had much more insight into this than I did. Oh, I'm not sure about that. Um, although this episode does feature some exciting Smithers baked cookies. It does, which I had to say were very good. It's not like I don't like food, I just can't really be asked. They get pretty short shrift, my biscuits. You they know? do, actually. I think he treated them with... with uh, with uh, well, should we say, should we say, very little respect? Yeah. Following a recipe, Simon, with passable technique. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about today. No. no. <laughs> so anyway, this is our chat with Rob Goss. I can't remember. Um, so you and Mel coming round for dinner. I thought, oh shit, we've got a chef coming for dinner. I've got to do something, at least a passable impression of something exciting. So I put, I got my, got my roast pork in the oven at bonkers o'clock in the morning so that it was slow roasted to an inch of its life. Made a really poncy kind of um, guardian-y, ottolenghi sort of salad or anything uh, sort of to go with it, you know, properly. It was delicious. It had yeah. pearl barley in it, didn't oh, it? Yeah, yeah it did it. have pearl barley. Thanks for remembering. Remember. Yeah, it's yeah, it memorable. Delicious. Memorable. Uh, and you said, I'll oh, bring pudding. And me and Joe were like, oh, God, he's going to bring pudding. It's going <laughs> to be the most amazing pudding. <laughs> Uh, and it's going to go brilliantly with the with the slow roast pork and everything like that. And you pitched up with a with a Vionetta, <laughs> which had ninety nine p sort of on the packet. <laughs> but I but that really made me laugh because I kind of thought, 
Oh, Rob's expecting. You're you're anticipating that we're going to be excited. You're anticipating the anticipation. And it was like a it was like a really good joke. Or do you just really love Vianetta? Yeah, well, I think who doesn't like Vianetta, right? I don't Absolutely. know if it if it harks back to when you're you know a kid or, yeah. or what have you. Um, in hindsight, maybe it was a bit cheeky bringing it around. <laughs> and I, our first I, evening, then no we, way, mate. We, we thought, spent I thought together, it, but I think I since really then funny. we've kind of got on famously. So. <laughs> yeah, Vianetta is the key. I went over to Copenhagen um, about eight, eight, ten years ago um, just for some work experience. Yeah. I worked in a few top restaurants out there. You just go over there and you you ask if you can just gate crash the kitchen, basically. You don't get paid for it. Right. Um, but they kind of... And that's called a stage, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's called a stage. Right. Adding to the idea of the restaurant as a theatre, which, yeah. I, quite, which um, I quite like. And they, you know, some some restaurants will be very guarded, secretive, and what do you think you're playing at? We're not going to let you into our, our kitchen. Really? And what, kind of is come it, and steal our ideas. Like industrial espionage? Basically, yeah. yeah. Um, but as a whole, most most restaurants will kind of, you know, ultimately it's free labour. So if you've got someone that, that is asking to come to your restaurant, um, and give two weeks, three weeks, a month um, of free labour just to, to come and learn. Um, is that you know, how I it's done? Should... Is that like your apprenticeship in cooking, is that how you do it? Um, it's it's certainly... Uh, it's, I would say that's the high end of, of the industry. Mm. Um, how many, how many people way... do you think are writing to Heston Blumenthal to ask if they can come and do a stage at... Uh, oh, thousands. They'll, yeah. they'll have... I can't imagine I'll... that many of them get taken on there. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd imagine that they, um, I mean, the, some of the restaurants that, that I went to in Copenhagen, you kind of um, get in touch with them. They've, they've got someone that's dedicated to kind of HR looking at sorting the stages out. And they've, they've got waiting lists. So, as you're on. yeah, you know, six months, a year before you want to go, you'll kind of drop an email and say, look, love to come and and work with you guys uh, for for a period of time and um, what do you can you put your finger on what it is you learn doing that sort of stuff is it technique or yeah I mean it's it's everything really it's how how different kitchens run um, it's ideas as well isn't it ideas yeah it's it's being like that culinary magpie that um, you kind of you're you're going into someone else's world that you know, if you just stand in the corner. You don't have to be doing a lot. You can you can learn a lot with your eyes and just little yeah. little techniques and um, ways of ways of cooking or flavor combinations. Um, there are all these things that that you can take away with you, and um, you know you you mix and mash all that yeah. up over a period of time um, in the industry, and and you can come away with some really great ideas yeah I bet. Um, and, and are kitchens receptive to this idea so if you've got somebody doing a stage in your really uh shishi restaurant in copenhagen are the other are are the people in the kitchen gonna go oh great somebody who doesn't really know how this restaurant works yeah come and let me give you all my time and expertise or or can you literally stand in the corner no i mean look they're they're clearly not gonna let you kind of stand on the pass and conduct service like after a week and um, plate up and... Um, so those are the things that require an awful lot of expertise. What was the first one you said, stand in there? At the pass, so well, the pass is, is basically where the food will be plated and then sent out into into the restaurant. You know, that's that's the spot that everything has to be checked, tasted, you know, it's on the runway, so before it goes out, um, you know, you need to. Uh, That's the point. Sure is that, that the point where you see um, you know, your, your famously um, cantankerous, you know, your your um, your Marco Pierre's and so on, Gordon, and Gordon Ramsay's saying no, do it again. It's like you know, re- refusing it basically. This is not good enough. Yeah. Does every yeah. plate get tasted? Um, Surely not. 
Yeah, well, so, I mean, in the big kitchens, you'll you'll have the sections and everything will come up in little pots or what have you, and then the protein will be the last thing to, to be sent up. Right. Um, so before it's plated, you will taste everything. Um you know, so you to, so really? you can get through you can get through a lunch service Amazing. or what have you and you know you could have tasted a a risotto thirty thirty five times well, you know just a little bit. Amazing! Um, have you done that job? Yeah. So you're just standing there barking orders, yeah, shouting yeah. out you know the checks that come on, but you need to have done every section in the kitchen um, to to be standing there and, yeah. and doing that job. You need to understand that. You know, you look over and you can see that the larder chef's in the shit and if if he's in the shit and he yeah. needs... So I guess it's a bit like mission control, bit. where the, the guy in the mission control seat needs to have done all those jobs he's looking at. Yeah, yeah. and then you need to you need to make sure that everyone um, comes together, yeah. um, basically, at, at the same time. So if you've got 10, 15 checks on with tasting menus multiple course menus um all at different stages you're kind of juggling this um and how heated does that get um it it can get you know it can get stressful yeah um, i can believe that because mistakes happen if something's overcooked or it's it's not quite right you get times when something's come up and it's you know you can have three different dishes Four different dishes um, come up to the pass, um, but a couple of elements on one of the dish could be wrong. And if you're a, a restaurant where people are paying a lot of money to to have an experience, um, you know it has to be bob on. So you're going to have to sack everything off, um, and. Do you send the uh, your major D out to apologise for them for the wait? No, you'd, <laughs> start again. You'd you'd it's all smoke and mirrors, isn't it? You have to you have to kind of show must go on, Rob. Yeah, you we would send an intercourse or right. something like that. Okay, um, who doesn't like intercourse? Sure, um, but we'd send <laughs> we'd send a little a bit of restaurant uh, humour there for you. <laughs> we'd send um, just a little a little course um, out. And it would, you know, go out into the restaurant, and yeah. it would be kind of like this. This is a an extra course from the chef. Mm. Um, but we're we're in the game where you kind of, you know, you've got one opportunity. People have have been waiting months to come in to the restaurant, and they have this bad experience that you know they're going to go up, they're going to go away, and um, you can't gonna... have it be bad. I can see the pressure. It's not. It's not acceptable. It's just um, not acceptable. Yeah. No. Anything less than brilliant to go I out. mean ultimately we are just cooking food yeah um, but you know when you get to a level in anything um, it, it has to be it has to be right and you're not banging away in a kitchen for 14 15 hours a day to send out shit what the world needs now is another podcast from a couple of middle-aged fools I guess I'm a I'm a stickler for technique. I love technique. I get off on something that has been done beautifully from start to finish. Um, for example, what's your favourite thing to? Uh, I remember being taught an oxtail dish, um, which at the time gave me many sleepless nights. Um, whereas you, it's basically a braised oxtail. But it's done in a really refined way where you have your whole oxtail and you need a nice fat covering on the top of it. And you basically bone an oxtail. So boning an oxtail is extremely fiddly, um, takes a long time. This technique as well requires you to bone it but not have any holes in it because you're going to farce it and tie it and braise it and cook it. So it needs to be, you need to basically bone it and open it up like a book um, and it to be kind of no meat left on the bone, no holes, 
down right. down the back, and then you um, then you farce it with um, a big piece of smoke pancetta. What's um, farce? Is that stuffing? Stuffing, basically, yeah. yeah. Um, roast shallot, roast banana shallots. You'd wrap that in um, savoy. You'd blanch a savoy cabbage leaf. So you'd put the savoy cabbage leaf on top of the the oxtail, then you'd put the bacon, the onion, and you'd roll it up, tie it, um, then you'd marinate it in a, a port and red wine uh, reduction uh, overnight. Then you'd then you'd brown it off and braise it in a veal stock for about three four hours. Oh, and you'd yeah. take it out, you'd take the string off, you'd roll it tightly in cling film you'd set that overnight in the fridge and then you'd slice it like a fillet steak and you've got a beautiful piece of braised oxtail um that you would then glaze up with a, a sauce that you made from the cooking liquor so easy you've as got that. as easy as that mate and you've got something that that's going from a home cook can get an oxtail you can get your butcher to hack it up into kind of <laughs> two and a half three inch pieces you'd brown it off you'd braise it in the veal stock mm. and you'd eat it um and it it would you know it, it would be it fine. ultimately it tastes delicious but that's the difference where you're you're taking a technique yeah and turning it into something where the guest will be presented it with an oxtail and they'll think wow, how is it that shape but it's not got a bone in it? Mm. So that's what I was talking about before, making the familiar unfamiliar. That that feels like elevating something. You're an oxtail, presumably. Is that a cheap cut? Yeah, it is. I'll tell you, it's... It's a cheap cut, it's a tail. And to take something like that and elevate... I mean, that that feels feels like a pretty creative endeavour to me. My only experience of oxtail is Heinz oxtail soup. I don't know, I was a kid. Pretty grim, isn't it? Oxtail yeah, soup. I, I, I'm I sure Rob's is fabulous. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was a long time ago. No, but... Don't know, don't know Heinz, don't know Heinz soup. That's another one of your favourites, isn't it? The Heinz. I mean, soup. I'd eat Heinz minestrone soup cold out of the tent. Oh, that's grim. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, is a refined palate. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> food is is um you know we all need food. We're gonna we we gotta have it. But so there's the the functional beans on toast to because your tummy rumbling end of it, and then you're operating at right at the other end mm. of it, which is where it's it's not necessarily functional. You're doing this because you, you'll go into these restaurants for the experience for the for an extraordinary taste experience, mm. and a sort of like you say, all the theatre and the you know the whole thing of it. It's a, presumed that's a sliding scale of I'm hungry, I need to eat something, and I want to go and have the most amazing food ever. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you realise when you're tipping over that into the, right, okay, this is good food now? Or is it, is it a really blurry line or is it a really hard line? Um, no, I mean, you certainly, I remember when when I got my first first job up in London um, in a Michelin-style restaurant and, you know, you, you get a quick idea that, you know, you're, you're somewhere different. You, you, right. You can feel that the level is is gone up a notch, and um, you step your game up, and and you soon realise that you know it has to be it has to be. Was it scary? Do you remember that being? A, do you remember being anxious about that, or did you feel okay about it straight away? Um, no, I mean it's it's incredibly exciting. Um, you didn't have any dark nights of the soul. We thought I don't belong here. No, I mean, I always felt I belonged in a kitchen. It was where I was, I was comfortable. Okay. Um, but of course, you you have concerns if you're good enough. Yeah. Um, especially, at, you know, at that level. I mean, I and guess it's like a, a football team. You know, you're you're going from a low level league. Yeah. Team, and then you're elevated into the Premier League. Big step up. Um, you know, and your your training sessions, I'm sure, are going to be kind of up tenfold and you know you must you must have anxieties that you know did you come across to be here yeah did you come across people who couldn't hack it uh oh yeah all all the time Uh, you know there were guys that that would uh kind of pop out after lunch service and 
you know, not come back. Really? <laughs> yeah, they'd just they'd make an excuse or, or what have you. Um, and you just just wouldn't come back. Wow. Um, I guess when if you got all these these places where there's people queuing up for like a year yeah. to work there for nothing. Yeah. I guess the staff turnover is going to be fairly because they know there's like yeah they can replace yeah. you pretty easily. Yeah, sure. Neil and Simon, Neil and Simon, what a pair of twats! Riding on the coattails of people who have talent, they are not afraid to look like a desperate double act. Neil and Simon, Neil and Simon, what a pair of twats. So I was, uh, I was sort of thinking about our chat today and I, and I thought about this, this book that I'd heard of but never read called White Heat. Do you know mm. that? Yes. I- iconic. Iconic, book. yeah. Iconic, iconic book by Everything Marco. about it, the photography, yeah. the little anecdotes okay. and So it's Marco Pierre it. White. He was a bad boy, wasn't he? He was like the... 1990 that book came out, so that... Mm. How how old were you been when you when it was nine, 1990? 1990, I was nine years old. Nine years old. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so in fact that we're quite old. That pro- yeah, we are quite old. So yeah. that so that wouldn't really have been in your sweet spot in terms of you know it wouldn't have been a was it an influence on you that book was he you know that style of sort of rock and uh, Sheffer's rock and yeah, roll style. Yeah, I think I was about I think I was about sixteen, fifteen, sixteen when when I bought that book. Yeah. Um, and you know that was, yeah, of course that was a that was a massive part of of kind of deciding that take it take it up a notch and really give a go at the sort of premiership of of cooking. So, but that, that book was just all about rock and roll, wasn't it? It was bad behaviour. It was sort of wild creativity and. Um, and really macho too. He's really alpha male kind of a guy, isn't he? Yeah. He's, and, and I think he's, Gordon Ramsay was in that kitchen as well. Yeah. I, I, I can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, that's, I can't imagine I mean, that like. notoriously was, you know, the SAS, they called it, of kitchens. In terms of what what these chefs were putting putting themselves through to create the, the level of food. Um you know, and his his style of food was was something I think that was was new to to the UK at that time. Mm. Um, it was very classical, but he kind of freshened it up and and made it and made it modern. Um, and yeah, you just you look back at that book and just iconic recipes. Was he a bit of a hero? Was he like... Oh, one hundred percent. He yeah. was. You know, he was like. Yeah, I want to be Marco P.I. White. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I need to read that book, I think. Yeah, I think Sounds I do great. too. Um, what was his restaurant in the late 90s in Soho? Had, uh, I worked at a restaurant called Mirabelle, which was... Okay, could be that. Was, it was, that was one of his restaurants. Um, Did you meet him then? I remember my first day, I walked down the corridor and it, this was when he wasn't, he wasn't really in the kitchen anymore, but... Mm. Um, yeah, I uh, walked down the corridor and he came the other way. And you know, he's he was big, tall guy. Big, yeah. And um, presence. Yeah, I mean, just kind of. I think I walked past him and put my head down and looked the other way. Do you know what I mean? You just you didn't fall to your knees and sort of genuinely. Yeah, it was. It was incredible because you know you. you Sounds grow, like you respected you, the alpha male there. Not even going to not even going to meet his eye. Yeah, yeah. you've grown up reading that book and falling asleep with it kind of on your chest, and then to be in that yeah, in that situation great. where you're you're kind of God, you must have felt yeah. like you made it. That must um, have been amazing working in working in that restaurant with with him walking down the corridor yeah I, I, I don't know I kind of it was it was just uh, it was quite a scary time um, you know I, I kind of I was wet behind the ears I I went up I'd been working in Salisbury and you know I was 19 years old I was just so pleased to have been offered a job I didn't I, I didn't even ask what what my salary was or, no. or, or what I was being paid it was just like Wow, shit! This is this is the start. Being at that wonderful stage in life where it didn't matter mm. what I was being paid um, or or anything like that. Yeah, no didn't have anything to worry about other than kind of turning up and and just getting stuck in. 
in your situation now, which is a slightly different one, presumably there's a lot more onus on you now to create new things. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, when you're, when you're in a kitchen with 15, 20 other chefs, you know, you can, you can bounce off one another. Mm. Um, you can see chefs coming up with other ideas. Um, you can see different techniques and you can think, oh, that, that's great, but maybe you could apply it to this. And, you know, you're, you're constantly thinking and, and it's easy to be in that creative space. Okay. And then, you know, when you go into a situation where, you know, if you're in the private sector or a small local um, restaurant it's a little bit more difficult because you've not you've not got those ideas to to kind of bounce off with you know with someone else so that environment kind of forces you to be creative really yeah I guess it does and um, certainly going to markets um, being having that opportunity to to go to beautiful markets uh, where you've got an abundance of amazing ingredients, um, then that kind of pushes you down a certain avenue. That, um, so you're a, your situation now is you could be anywhere in the world and yeah. wherever you stop, there is going to be different sort of local ingredients. And does that sort of push you towards a certain type of cooking or a certain... Yeah, sure. And I guess this this goes back to if you've got your craft and your, your skills and techniques, then... You know that that's what you fall back on. Can you give us an example of something that's happened like that recently? Yeah, no. So I mean, I've, I've got got a friend, and I was working with him. Um, we were in Barbados, and there's an ingredient called breadfruit, which is like a um, starchy kind of uh, vegetable. Mm-hmm. I think it's a vegetable, despite the name. Yeah. Mm. Well, it grows on a tree, so it might be a it might be a fruit. Um, we we'll look it up. We're looking at This is Sickwiki, in which mildly unwell children read helpful entries from Wikipedia. Here's Maddie, who has a nasty cold. Breadfruit, Artocarptus altilist, is a species of flowering tree in the mulberry and jackfruit family, believed to be a domestic descendant of Artocarptus camnesi, originating in New Guinea, the Malku Islands and the Philippines. It was initially spread to Oceania via the Austronesian expansion. Anyway, um, so yeah, I got a friend, friend in Barbados who introduced me to this ingredient, breadfruit, and never heard of it. And we were on the beach and we were cooking, cooking a barbecue mm-hmm. and he got this breadfruit and he just threw it, threw it in the coals. We'd had like a, a big fire pit that we'd dug out in the sand and full of coconut husks and things like that. It was burning away and he just threw the breadfruit in it until it was completely blackened on the outside about half an hour later. Um, he picks it out and then he takes it down uh, and rolls it into the sea. And then it, once it hits the water, it cracks and contracts and you peel off the burnt outer skin and inside it's the, the fruit or the, the starchy uh, mass inside is turned into this delicious um, cooked ingredient. Wow. And yeah, what does it, it taste of? Well, it's, it's it, start, it almost tastes like a potato, but he peeled it, peeled off all the black stuff and then he just ripped a bit off in his hand and he dipped it in the sea. And, and ate it seasoned it and it seasoned it yeah. and or you can have it with it's delicious with hot butter mel- melted over it um, most things are delicious with hot butter though. <laughs> yeah. but that that was you know that blew my mind because I'd I'd just been kind of brought into to kind of a way of cooking that I hadn't seen before but mm. an ingredient and I mean that's proper romantic when yeah. I think about that you know the sun's going down and all that, uh, and but it was it was delicious. Did you, know, you I, did you go on and use that? Yeah, I've so so now whenever I come across breadfruit, I will do that. Mm-hmm. And it's I guess if people would be like me when they see it for the first time, yeah. it's like Blame mind. wow, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. 
Hey Rob, so we've got a um, we've got a biscuit feature on this exciting podcast. Um, but seeing as we had a chef uh, on the show today, I've, I've, I've slightly gone to town. I feel like I couldn't bust out a McVitie's rich tea. He's pushed the boat right out. Pushed the boat right out. He may not be able to get it back. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> so I have made uh, orange and rosemary biscotti. Now you you are you are talking to a man that brought round a Viennetta. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Damn your eyes. Yeah. So Rob, so I've made this orange and rosemary biscotti this very morning. Wow! Check that out. And no. instead of dipping it in tea, you're supposed to dip it in Van Santo. Do you want to try one of these, Rob? Yeah, go on. I'll give you. You've got to go get a Chefy Mark out of Chefy Mark out of ten. You want a splash of that to dip in? Splash it. Splash me. You're off the booze, are you, Rob? You're going to be prepared yeah, to dip in that. I'm prepared to. Another thing to soften it up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 It's a, it's a tiny bit down. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be rock hard. <laughs> Honestly, you lot. Last time I made biscuits. Yeah. Thank you very much. What's the verdict? As far as biscotti goes, it's the best one I've had today. You're a, you're a good man. Because <laughs> <laughs> mm. that is a, a whole other um, area of endeavour in a kitchen, isn't it? The whole pastry chef thing. Mm. It's a whole, that is, a, is, that, is it a different calling or do you have to do all of it? Um, no, there are certain certain chefs that will bypass that mm-hmm. section and then just kind of patch their way through their career, being able to do, you know, a few desserts. It's not not the natural habitat for um, for a lot of chefs. They, right. they don't feel comfortable doing it. Um do you, do you do it? Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy the the pastry section. Okay. Um, I think it's it's that precise technical side to cookery that I really enjoy. You get that element from pastry. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I guess we we after the thing we touched on it earlier it was kind of that nostalgic element to to food and a yeah. smell and experience that kind of takes you takes you back yeah. to to a time in your life and it could be 30 years ago yeah, but so making people feel there. something yeah yeah um and you know it might go back to why everyone thinks that you know their granny's the best the best cook yeah it, it kind of is transporting you back to to a comfortable time in your life where mm. you know you were you were at ease and you were happy and you, you you had someone that was cooking you something delicious, but something about it that yeah, just definitely. makes it different. Uh, so your grandmother's Danish, right? She is, yes. So those are your Danish yeah. roots and uh, she's quite important to you in terms of Yeah, your... she, she still is. She's she's had a massive impact on, on my life professionally and, you know, as with my upbringing. But she's... She's just an incredible cook. What was she cooking with you when you were little? Um, all sorts. I mean, it, it it just sounds, you know, you you get people that say they sat on their granny's knee and they potted peas and all yeah. that kind of shit. But it, it really was like that for me. And they they live on the, uh, the coast in Lincolnshire, in the Wolds. And it, we would go up there on school holidays and... You know, I'd I'd go out fishing with my grandfather. We'd go out shoot wood pigeon, and we'd go crabbing, and I'd bring them all back. And you know, I'm a I'm a kind of six, seven, eight year old boy, and you you're there with your grandmother, and she's teaching you how to pluck, pluck the pigeons. You know, draw them, peel a gizzard, blimey, um, put peel a yeah, gizzard. Yeah, don't it? don't bother. No, we okay. won't even go down there. <laughs> um, you can buy them. You can buy them tinned and confit in goose fat, and they're delicious. I don't think I want to Just do that do either. That. A gizzard. Mm. Mm. But yeah, and she, you know, you'd get to that point, and then she'd take me into the kitchen and put meths on a plate and light it, and then singe the the hairs on the bird to get rid of it, and you wow. know, all this kind of 
theatre and and it it was just kind of like watching that it was like magic for for a young boy to to get into that sort of detail and level and then cook it and make it delicious um so was that did you know back then that that's what you wanted to do yeah, 100% yeah I've I've been lucky in life that I I kind of found found my path from an early age that that I've I've kind of not had had that trauma of not knowing what I'm going to do I I was kind of pretty pretty set from the beginning that must be amazing I would love that yeah I would love that too yeah. <laughs> I'm still really, trying to work yeah, it out I know what you mean So I think for 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 non for non chefs, uh, um, I suppose there's there's kind of a cliche, the cliched idea of the restaurant that is suddenly aware that there's a critic in the building, uh, and everybody starts panicking. Have you ever been? Have you ever been in a, a situation where everyone said, "Oh, there's like like there's all these kind of crazy things about Michelin star critics will always mm. drop a fork or something." Yeah. Uh, and and to see if to see if the staff are sharp enough to pick it up. Is that mm. right? Is that a thing? Apparently, or spoon. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, it might be an old wives' tale, but certainly I, I heard this idea that if if a spoon had been dropped on the floor, you know, a waitress would pick it up and say, you've dropped this, sir, or replace it straight away. Yeah. <laughs> but then she'd do a dash to the kitchen to say, oh my God, Michelin star here. Really? So <laughs> so it's a... It's that such might a, be nonsense. Might be nonsense. Is it nonsense? You can tell us, Rob. Oh, I mean, I don't know. These stories come about... You know, there's there's a reason why stories come about, isn't mm. there? But maybe um, it happened once. Yeah, maybe it happened once. Who knows? But you kind of, I mean, with with mentioning, you don't you don't know when they're coming in. Um, till they drop a spoon. Till they drop a spoon. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you you never really know, but I guess you get a sense of how how a table's behaving, what they're ordering. Um, oh, what do critics order? Yeah, things, One of everything. Things are different, and historically, I think you know they'll more often go with an a la carte menu than a tasting menu, um, and you kind of get get a little hunch, I guess. But yeah, I remember being being in a situation where I was I was running the pass and running the kitchen, and in this restaurant. And there was a feeling that this table or two were, were Michelin and, you know, it's a big thing when your your restaurant is is based around having an accolade like that, being a destination restaurant, slightly in the middle of, you know, nowhere. Uh, it's, an in, it's an important mm. sort of... And does a panic go around the kitchen or not really? Yeah, well, that's, your, your job is to try and... <laughs> Keep the panic to a minimum. Yeah, try and keep the panic to a minimum and, and and not, you know, let anyone catch on to to the fact that Michelin might be in. You want to kind of almost ignorance is bliss. Just right, yeah. Just You'd rather team, not know. Just let so, the team go. Yeah, on added pressure and, is and not going to help anybody. Yeah. yeah. So what uh, happened? What happened? I remember, you know, I remember being pretty pretty uptight about it. You know, I was I was young. I was kind of responsible for for this service and kitchen you know put onus on myself you know I put pressure on myself and wanted everything to be perfect and there was a problem with um a turbot a fish dish we had had on that was that was ordered by this table and it was a tranchant of turbot which is basically it's cut it's like a a t-bone steak with you know, with a turbot, with a fish. So you've got okay. the bone through the middle and yeah. the flesh either side. It's delicious and it keeps it really moist and juicy, but it's a big, thick bit of protein. So cooking it correctly, you know, takes time and it's it takes a bit of skill. And this turbot was just taking longer than, you know, than we wanted. And it was, you know, tensions were getting a little bit kind of yeah. high and I was... You know, the fucking turbot. Where's the fish? Where's the fish? <laughs> yeah, and I could feel myself actually. Like, you know, I was in service, and you've got all these guys behind you that are doing an incredible job. And you know, I that was that was a, a moment where I 
I really felt like I was fucking unraveling in front of them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was like yeah, you couldn't. couldn't you know, yeah, you're the, you're this the, you're the person that they're all waiting to hear your kind of instructions and and you're supposed to be the the voice of calm and um it was yeah just tell us what to do and it, it came up and it, it went out and it it went out as it should have and and it was fine but that little weight was yeah, you know it wasn't great it, it, was, it was tense and and we we weren't even sure that it was michelin and then at, at the end of the meal at the end of service, I was upstairs in the office um, running an order through and the major D comes up and goes, oh, can you come Can you come down? Um, Michelin are downstairs in the bar. Oh, wow. I want to speak to you. But it was. So when they, they come and they do visits um, in the year and then they'll, they'll announce themselves once or twice right. and then the rest of, of the visits you... You just don't know if they've been or not. So yeah, they. I went down, and I mean, my heart is coming out of my chest, yeah, and fair. you know, I'm, was, yeah. I'm feeling like jelly, jelly legged, and it, Mr. Goss, we want to talk to you about the turbot. <laughs> and they just, they just have a chat, and it, it's kind of, they don't give anything away. They don't say they, if they enjoyed it or not. No, they don't. Right. They, they go, oh, you know, do you think that the the portion for that dish was big enough and you know that which makes you immediately so, so then you're you're starting to double you know you're starting yes? to question no. yourself yeah, and, no yes <laughs> no and it's, well, it's interesting you should ask yeah. thanks for asking and then they asked to come and have a look around the kitchen and um we had quite a lot of chefs at the time for for essentially a, a 45 50 cover restaurant and you know they're like you've got got a lot of staff in here haven't you and then you're you're kind of thinking you know is that what they're trying to say is that bad too many are, we, staff? are we too many staff um always it was too many staff a good thing yeah oh and my it's, god <laughs> <laughs> like uh, an nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> and then they and then they just go on their way and god sounds terrifically passive aggressive <laughs> and you feel that you feel that pressure on yourself that you know ultimately if if things have gone badly, it's your fault. Mm. And um, I, yeah, I just remember it, it, it being a, a horrible experience. It wasn't like a proud experience yeah. for me. It's just a, just, it just was a just, nightmare. It was just fucking horrible. <laughs> and we had, I think we had another two or three months until the guide came out. Yeah. So They don't tell you. They don't tell you. And, you. and you wait to publication. And we retain the star, and you know, you're just. So, Simon, that was us talking to Rob Goss, uh, and you could feel attention in that Michelin star story. Uh, I, lo- yeah. I love the, I love the idea of the super passive aggressive Michelin star. <laughs> dudes that's turning it. up and just wreaking havoc in their quiet passive aggressive way yeah that's the job you want isn't it the michelin star guy definitely yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, scaring the shit out of everybody you come into contact <laughs> yeah, with all these all these high-powered chefs and restaurateurs and you, and you, just, yeah, and you just turn up just a little bit rude to them yeah and they have to they sweating have to, over their turbots that's right. <laughs> sweating over their turbots and you have to give them it all and they have to just they're just going to pass judgment Make yes. you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and then they're going to swan off. Oh, I've got some interesting... Um, I've got a factoid I just remembered, though. Do you know, up. Do you know where the Michelin Guide comes from? No, I don't. So the Michelin Guide originally was a, is a marketing exercise. Yeah. Was, is, was a marketing exercise. Yeah. Michelin, of course, make tyres. Yeah. What have they got to do with food? Yeah, exactly, nothing. Nothing at all. So Roadside what, cafes, maybe. Exactly, that's precisely how it started. It was... It is... The TripAdvisor of its day. It's well over 100 years old now. Yeah. And it was a, a list of places where you could go around France mm. in order to get good food. Right. So are you telling me that Michelin invented this guide 
in order to encourage people to spend more time on the road. Yes. To wear out their tyres so that they need a replacement. Precisely that. It's a marketing exercise and really quite a creative one yeah. back in the day. Yeah, so, really what creative. can we do to make people drive more and yeah. wear out their tyres? Food. More? People need food. People love food. Why do people stop? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about food. Yeah, exactly. And then they suddenly became more famous for food than tyres. Crazy, man. That is crazy. Although I think, they, I think they're probably still doing all right on the tyre front. Yeah, for sure. Uh, speaking of food, thought my biscuits got short shrift in that podcast. They did a bit. Not from me, though. I liked them. Yeah, well... But I mean, we've already determined that my taste is questionable. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> I think you like them because they were served with booze. Yeah, it could be that. It could be that just that they were dipped in booze. Rob didn't like them much. He bashed them against the piano to demonstrate how hard they were. Biscotti. They're biscotti. They're supposed to be hard. Are they? Yes! I don't know. They're baked twice. Oh, really? supposed to be crunchy and you dip them in your booze and it softens them up a bit oh, I thought they were lovely Neil and yeah. it was also very clear to me that it wasn't my opinion you were interested in <laughs> <laughs> no you're Spare probably right with there. the chef in the room oh, that's well. the guy you want to, yeah, to say your so. biscuits are good I suppose that's true anyway that was great and many thanks to Rob for his time it was, uh, it was lovely to chat to him it was great he being a man who works on a private yacht for which he signed an NDA and he's not allowed to tell anyone who it is, he's not on social media. No, so don't try and contact him. Contact us, though. Sure, man. You can contact us at soonpod.com. We're at soonpod. You can find us on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Insta, Facebook. We've even got a website. No, we've got all of them. Insta is soonpodpix. Oh, yeah, soonpod, at soonpodpix on Instagram. And all the others are just soonpod Yeah. with a .com or a... At or, you know, whatever. Yeah, we're pretty pleased with that soon acronym, aren't we? Yeah, we're, we're ridiculously pleased with ourselves about that. It doesn't really make any sense until you explain it. Soon being... <laughs> <laughs> so you say the only good thing about this podcast doesn't make any sense until you explain it. Oh. Is that the only good thing? No. Oh, we are in trouble. No, um, soon being a contraction, of course, of... Something, something out, out of nothing. nothing. Yes. Anyway... That's enough from us. We're going to uh, we're going to hit Nando's. Going to put on our cowboy boots and strut around, strut down to Nando's <laughs> for uh, some sort of nasty chicken burger. Spectacular. Yeah. So we'll see you next time for another conversation with another creative. See you then. Bye.